Scott Deal had a very busy job, and he liked it that way. When I first started, we'd have close to 100,000 boats a year. Massive amounts of recreational traffic. Was that fun? It was a lot of fun. Everybody would just go out on their boats to go get drunk and everything. Scott worked at Seattle's Ballard Locks. The locks is essentially an aquatic elevator. Boats go in and get raised and lowered. That allows them to travel between the saltwater of Puget Sound and a couple of freshwater lakes. It was Scott's job to make sure those vessels got through smoothly. That didn't always happen. People would get mad at each other because they thought somebody cut in ahead of you. And then they uh, would have exchange of words or even sometimes throwing bottles at each other. And that was fun for you when people would throw bottles at each other? (laughs) Well, it was just hilarious to see human behavior. I mean, if you wanted to study how people are, that was the place. The locks were also a great place to observe other species. I was a a little kid in the early, mid, late 80s, and one of our favorite things to do on weekends was to go to the Ballard Locks and watch this hurricane of fish. That's journalist Kate Gammon. As a kid, she saw all kinds of fish pass through the locks on their way to spawn. They swam down their own private concrete passageway. It was called a fish ladder, and it was on display for everyone to see. So you enter a cement building and then take these stairs down. And suddenly you're in this room with this giant plexiglass window. And you just can stand at the window and watch these silvery fish sort of fight their way from left to right. Still today, people come from all over the world to watch the fish whiz past and to see the boats rise and fall. It's easy to get lost in the crowd at the Ballard Locks, since it gets more than a million visitors a year. But back in the early 80s, one out-of-town guest caught everybody's attention. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember the exact day or anything, but during the winter, all of a sudden, the sea lion showed up. Just poking his head up, not doing anything nefarious, just kind of cruising around. And an old fisherman kind of pointed to him and said, oh, hey, that looks like a guy I used to work with down at the docks named Herschel. And it just stuck. I don't even know who did it, but all of a sudden it it was kind of went viral, uh, (laughs) so to speak. Herschel was a California sea lion. Every November, after mating season was over, Scott would see that familiar sea lion face back for another visit to the Pacific Northwest. Herschel was a big old bull. You just hear the seagulls all of a sudden getting excited, and you just looked over there, and you'd see him down there thrashing about. There was a reason Herschel chose the Ballard Locks as his hangout. Not long after he got to Seattle, he made a discovery. The fish ladder was a great place to eat. There's three sides surrounding him, and Eve was guarding the opening. So any fish that came in there, he would just chase them out till they get fatigued and wear down. He would simply gobble up these fish as they exited through this passageway. It was like fish in a barrel. More and more tourists started showing up to watch Herschel gorge himself. It was a pretty amazing show. He would just kind of get it by the head and, and kind of sit upright and just choke it down, the whole thing. I mean, he could just swim around, grab one, gulp it down, and a few minutes later, have another one in his face. I've seen him eat the uh, six, seven pounders and just swallow it like it was a sardine. <laughs> it would just... <laughs> 
I actually use Herschel as a shorthand in our house, like don't Herschel that burrito. It just means like eating without chewing. The food just goes down your throat without any teeth involved. At first, Scott thought the whole Herschel spectacle was fascinating to watch. Wow, I've never seen that happen before, and especially up close and personal. So it was, it was kind of neat. But then he brought a friend along, and then it became four or five of them. And, you know, that was, that was pretty much the beginning of the end then. Very quickly, the cute story of an insatiable sea lion would transform into something alarming. The fish run that Herschel and his friends were chowing down on would be facing extinction. In 1986, war would be declared on those very hungry sea lions, and the people of Seattle would have to choose sides. Suggestions range from benign to bloodthirsty. Drag them on off. Keep on dragging them clear over to Japan or someplace. Well, I think they ought to shoot them. I mean, kill it. In this week's episode, a battle between man and beast that divides a city and gets the White House stirring. At its center is a thorny question. Who decides which creatures get to live and which have to die? This is One Year, 1986. Herschel versus the Blubberbusters. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Around Seattle these days, they're telling a fish story, and it's a whopper. It's the story of Herschel. In the mid-1980s, Herschel the Sea Lion became a major Seattle celebrity. There were Herschel songs and a children's book called Herschel's Special Dream. Scott Deal saw Herschel's fan club assemble at the Ballard Locks every day. People just went crazy over it. Picture takers sign makers. Every day they flock to see this sea lion. And everybody, whenever they, where's Herschel? Where's Herschel? And I said, uh, lady, I tie up boats. I'm not the Herschel watch guy. I was a Herschel stand for sure. As a kid, Kate Gammon loved to watch the hurricane of fish at the Ballard Locks. But this new guy, Herschel, was even more thrilling. Anytime you could go see a really fat sea lion just sort of like, you know, pillaging through the water, um, it's good entertainment. Like watching a lion in a safari take care of a zebra or eat its prey, it's pretty violent. It was, it was awful. Warren King George is a historian for the Muckleshoot Indian tribe. The Muckleshoot didn't see Herschel as a lovable scoundrel. That hungry sea lion was a threat to the tribe's court-mandated fishing rights. And it wasn't just that. Herschel was devouring what the tribe held most dear. Fish and fishing are central to the Muckleshoot's identity. 
And they're at the heart of some of Warren's most cherished childhood memories. My dad and I, we camped in our boat. We sat there all night, all bundled up in probably four or five layers in the wintertime. I can still imagine myself laying there looking up at the stars. And I can't recall if our fishing was successful or not, but I just remember having a really good time with my father. Warren and his father were fishing for steelhead, a kind of jumbo trout. Each winter, they migrate from the ocean to freshwater streams. They're long and narrow, so they're built for speed. They're beautiful to look at as well, the rainbow colors. And it's got the spots on it, and it's delicious to eat. Herschel thought steelhead was delicious too. And in the mid-1980s, he was devouring them at a remarkable rate up to 16 fish in a single day. Sea lions, they're impressive animal to look at, but they, you know, they smell terrible, they sound terrible, and they have a voracious appetite. For most of the 20th century, sea lions had been the ones under attack in the Pacific Northwest. Washington state paid a bounty of $5 per dead animal, hoping to eliminate them as competition for commercial fishermen. I think kill is a, is a strong word. Population control might be another term you could use. <laughs> That's a euphemism. Killing is, uh, is accurate, too. No, it is. No, it's spot on. If your livelihood is being threatened, you know, you're willing to do what needs to be done. Sea lions didn't just get killed by fishermen. They were also slaughtered for their pelts and sold for pet food. This indiscriminate killing reached such proportions that many species were almost totally wiped out. By the 1960s, it was incredibly rare to see a sea lion in Puget Sound. It was around then that public sentiment about marine mammals started to shift. There was mass outrage over dolphins drowning in tuna nets and baby seals getting clubbed to death. They're clubbed uh, indiscriminately in front of their mothers. Only the pelts are taken. The rest of the carcass is left on the ice. So 1972, with uh, Richard Nixon in office, the Federal Marine Mammal Protection Act is actually passed, and that protects these creatures. The Marine Mammal Protection Act outlawed the hunting and killing of seals, dolphins, whales, and sea lions. It was a huge success, and their population just very quickly begins to rebound. For the first time in decades, California sea lions were splashing around all over Puget Sound. It looked like a picture of a healthy ecosystem coming back to life. These creatures are popping up everywhere, and people were really excited to see them again. In the 1980s, one Herschel became two, then three, and four, and five. It became the name for any sea lion around the locks. They were all kind of made into a squished-up version that was called Herschel. Thanks to the Marine Mammal Protection Act, all those Herschels were thriving. They were also devouring another species, the steelhead. Our relationship with the sea lions is love-hate because we know that they're part of this habitat. It's just that sometimes they're opportunistic, so they're just going to feed and feed and feed. Non-indigenous fishermen were getting frustrated, too. When Scott Deal wasn't on the job at the Ballard Locks, he was out on a river somewhere, trying to catch steelhead himself. So average, they uh, spent about um, 8 to 12 hours of fishing to catch one. Wow. So 
the sea lion is basically just mocking you. Like it takes you eight to 12 hours and it takes that like 15 seconds. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they would, uh, hunt them down pretty quick. They'd catch a couple hands and rip out the stomach and get the entrails, you know, the egg row. Well, that was uh, very painful because you know, when they're eating eggs, that's wiping out next generation. If the steelhead couldn't reproduce, they were as good as dead. Fishermen were feeling powerless and angry. So they started reaching out to someone they hoped might be able to help. We started getting reports of sea lions taking fish and just generally appearing in areas that we had not seen them before. Joe Scordino worked for a federal agency, the National Marine Fishery Service. It was depressing to see what they were doing to the steelhead. It was Joe's job to protect those steelhead. And they were no ordinary trout. The pathway they swam on was the only major urban steelhead run in the entire world. So, while steelhead weren't an endangered species, saving these steelhead felt crucially important. And in 1986, a total wipeout looked like a possibility. In just two years, the population around the locks had plummeted from 2,500 to just 500 fish. We had everybody concerned and upset that we needed to do something to fix the problem. I got called up at the point where they were already established there and just staying there all day long and killing fish. Steve Jeffries was a marine mammal scientist for the state of Washington. He worked alongside Joe Scordino. Our whole intent was to try and reduce the predation and at the same time, do it with as much humaneness as we could to save that Lake Washington winter steelhead run. Steve and Joe were going on the offensive. Herschel the California sea lion may have been popular, but it was time to send him a message. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. We were there to do our job, and we knew that it was a tough job because nobody else had done it before. These elite sea lion wranglers gave themselves a name. We called ourselves the Blubber Busters. Since killing the sea lions was illegal, the Blubber Busters would have to get creative. Convincing Herschel to clear out was going to be a tough challenge, but they didn't think it was an impossible one. All we got to do is do something that would just show these animals this wasn't a good place to eat and we'd solve the problem. The Blubber Busters were ready to spring into action. The battle was set for January 7th, 1986, and the media was on high alert. That morning, a local FM rock station was broadcasting live from the Ballard Locks, and the national TV networks had their cameras rolling. You can't kill them, but you can scare them. And before dawn today, state officials tried to do just that using waterproof firecrackers. Those waterproof firecrackers were called seal bombs. It's about the size of your index finger, maybe. And you light it, uh, and it gives off a really close thump, thud, flash. With the seal bombs in hand, they climbed aboard a motorboat. Then, they headed straight for Herschel and four of his sea lion pals. You throw the firecracker, the sea lion would come up really quickly, raise its head, look at the person that threw the firecracker, and then take off. 
By dawn, the assault apparently had driven Herschel and his friends a mile away into Puget Sound. This has been very effective, and, and we're pleased with the results. The sea lion stayed away for the next three days. But then, at dawn, on January 11th, they were back. And they'd figured out a workaround for those waterproof firecrackers. We'd see a sea lion, and we'd take a seal bomb out to light it, and we'd take a Bic lighter. They would see us take the Bic out of our pocket, and before you could flick the Bic, they would move out of range because they knew we could only throw it five yards. They would go down maybe 50 yards and stop there and then just stare at us. <laughs> and it was kind of, okay, what are you going to do next? The Blubberbusters had plenty of other ideas. One of them required special audio equipment. The plan this time was to chase the sea lions away with a kind of underwater air horn. If that sounds annoying, that was the point. So we were in a boat with the equipment, turned it on, went sea lions in the area, and they immediately left. The sea lions were gone, again, but not for long. They slowly started coming back and essentially testing, did that noise hurt? Some of them learned then, as they passed over the area where the decibels were the highest, they would just swim in with their head out of the water. When you see that or hear about that, that they were swimming with their heads out of the water, is there some part of you that's like, that's pretty good. You got to hand it to them. Yeah, they were very adaptable. I'll, I'll call them intelligent, very intelligent animals. Sea lions are some of the smartest animals on the planet. They can understand simple language and retain long-term memories. And in captivity, they can do all kinds of impressive tricks. Most of the performing seals we see in public shows are actually sea lions, a species called California sea lion. They're used because they're highly intelligent and easy to train. The sea lions at the Ballard Locks were getting trained by humans, just not in the way the humans had intended. The animals quickly learned to recognize us because safety-wise, we had to wear orange life vests. We looked different than the rest of the people around the locks, so they would just avoid us. It was incredible how quickly they learn. That winter steelhead run ended in March of 1986. With the buffet closed, Herschel swam back to California to get ready for mating season, and the blubberbusters were left to assess the damage. The seal bombs and the underwater air horn hadn't been a total flop. They'd saved an estimated 1,800 steelhead, putting the fish run on a more sustainable path. And maybe they'd bothered the sea lions just enough that they'd go looking for a different hunting ground the next winter, a place where they could snack in peace. All the blubberbusters could do was wait and keep an eye out for Herschel's whiskery face. And lo and behold, he was back at the locks the next year again. It was Herschel versus the Blubberbusters, round two. And Joe and Steve had a bold new plan. Why don't we try and catch them with a net? 20 state and federal employees helped set up that net. And 200 onlookers crowded around to watch to see if Herschel would finally get snatched away from his all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. We had him surrounded. The only way he could get out would be to jump over the net. Herschel jumped over the net. 
a couple of sea lions swam under the net, too. And the crowd at the Ballard Locks was cheering them on. There would be a lot of oohing and on and kind of, hey, wow. Scott Deal heard all that oohing and eyeing from his perch at the locks. To them, it was just like a free circus. Do some neat tricks, catch fish. The crowds weren't just entertained by the sea lions daring. They also delighted in the blubberbusters' ineptitude. How the sea lions mocked their new plans and got wise to the old ones. An artist made souvenir t-shirts that showed a sea lion playing chess against a wildlife manager. You can tell by the looks on their cartoon faces that the sea lion is a wily genius and the human is in way over his head. Time was running out for the steelhead at the Ballard Locks and the battle to save them was about to get a lot more intense. Killers are roaming the waters of Puget Sound in broad daylight. Authorities seem powerless to stop them. That has tempers rising. They said if we did anything to those sea lions, they were going to start shooting at us from top of the hill. We'll be back in a minute. A lot of people saw the fight between Herschel and the Blubber Busters as a slapstick comedy routine. The story of a rascally mammal who stuck it to the man by indulging his appetites. I had many press conferences where, uh, you know, the uh, reporters were asking questions and laughing as they asked the questions. Joe Scordino of the National Marine Fishery Service. It didn't make me feel very good standing in the front of the room, having people laughing as I'm trying to explain it. It was a serious matter. We were trying to save these fish. Not everyone in Seattle was laughing. From my perspective, it was horrifying to see what was happening. Tony Frohoff is a wildlife behavior biologist. She could see that something was out of whack with the ecosystem at the Ballard Locks. But she believed the blubberbusters had it all wrong. The government agencies, they were blaming the sea lions. The sea lions were a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. The way Tony saw it, the real source of the conflict was people and what they had done to the natural world. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built the Ballard Locks in 1916. To allow boats to move freely, they used dams and gates to lower Lake Washington by nine feet. And so... This whole system was totally turned upside down. The Black River is decimated, completely gone. Um, It's a ditch. The Muckleshoot historian Warren King George. Once that access to that habitat was eliminated, the steelhead really had nowhere to go. That is, nowhere to go except the Ballard Locks fish ladder. As Seattle expanded into a metropolis, those steelhead became a symbol of what the city still hoped it could be, a place where the natural and man-made worlds could coexist in harmony. But then Herschel came along, and the Ballard Locks became a sushi conveyor belt. The locks itself was almost a killing machine. We put concrete in the streams, and then we go ahead and blame the sea lions for being the animals that they are. Tony thought harassing the sea lions was cruel and pointless. 
that the blubberbusters had a better chance of hurting Herschel than saving the fish. But the Muckleshoot tribe and commercial fishermen wanted more harassment. By 1989, there were as many as 60 sea lions at the locks, and they all thought steelhead was a tasty treat. The sea lions, I know they have their place in this world. I I just hate the idea of, of letting them kind of have the last word. So what was the answer? The fix that would make everyone happy and protect every species? The blubberbusters were trying to figure that out and satisfying no one. Everything we were doing there at the locks was essentially being done under a microscope. Everybody saw it. The news media was there. We had threats of lawsuits to stop the operations, you know, stop our effort. So it it turned into a huge nightmare. It was a nightmare for Scott Deal, too. And even though he worked at the locks, all he could do was toss out ideas to the scientists in charge. I've had some heated conversation with biologists telling me that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, look, I watch this daily. I said, I suggested that they had a managed hunt for those. I mean, who wouldn't want a trophy like that? Hunting sea lions was still illegal, thanks to the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But that didn't mean that Herschel was safe. By 1989, the blubberbusters had shifted to a new phase. Now, they wanted to move the sea lions, trapping them and taking them away from the locks. The first step was to coax them into what looked like a floating prison cell. But after that, nothing went according to plan. When we were first starting to capture, we were using drugs to anesthetize the animal. With onlookers around and TV cameras rolling, they injected a sea lion with narcotics to try to keep its stress down. Then it stopped responding. And so it was immediately broadcast that, um, you know, we had essentially killed one of the animals. The blubberbusters accidentally killed four sea lions in a two-year span. A medical exam on one of those animals turned up something unexpected. A bullet lodged in its throat. There were people that were actually shooting sea lions on buoys in, in Puget Sound. The marine mammal scientist Steve Jeffries where you had these vigilantes that thought that the obvious solution is if there were no sea lions, there would be no predation. When people are out there, they think they can just blow them away. That's what happens. Sea lions were getting killed by anesthesia and ammunition. And the fight on land was getting more and more frenzied. We even had people call down and do death threats. They were definitely angry and they were definitely anonymous and they would just start cussing at you and telling us to leave those sea lions alone and that they have a right to live, too. And if uh, you continued harassing them or you did any harm to them, they, we're going to start shooting at you guys. What did you say back? <laughs> yeah, I'm just tying up boats. I'm not involved. It just happens to be happening at my workplace. So please don't shoot me. Scott didn't get shot at, but something clearly had to give to protect the steelhead, the sea lions, and all the people caught in between. And so, in March 1990, the blubberbusters did something that I still can't believe actually happened. We were going to capture the animals and relocate them, clear down to Southern California. 
The Blubberbusters were taking a half dozen of the hungriest sea lions on an epic road trip. We actually caught them in Seattle. We drove them down I-5 in a big caravan in trailers and cages. You know, I've got pictures of the caravan going through palm trees where we're driving these sea lions from the Ballard Locks to Santa Barbara. The drive from Seattle to Southern California took 23 hours. According to one news story, the biggest adventure of the trip was watching stunned tourists at rest areas. We couldn't release them in state waters, so we took them out to the federal waters around the Channel Islands, took them in a boat, dropped them off three miles from their breeding grounds. The goal of this road trip was to buy the steelhead time by keeping the Herschels distracted with sea lions of the opposite sex. I thought because the timing was close to the breeding season that the breeding drive would be stronger than the food drive. But these sea lions, they defied expectations. Nobody could believe it. The animal showed up on a buoy and somebody took a picture of it. It was just disbelief. (laughs) The animal, it was back. And I think that was the headline. It was, it's back. (laughs) It was a thousand miles from Southern California to Seattle. Four of the six sea lions swam back within a month. If their intent is that strong to come back, it was kind of, well, this is the last straw. There's no way to keep these animals away from here. The blubberbusters had tried everything. Seal bombs, an underwater air horn, all types of nets and cages, and their stuff I haven't even mentioned. They laced steelhead with lithium chloride to try to make the sea lions barf. They shot at them with crossbows loaded with rubber-tipped arrows. And my personal favorite, they installed the system of 500-watt lights to encourage the steelhead to swim upstream at night while the sea lions were sleeping. None of it worked. By 1993, there were just 150 steelhead left. For the blubberbusters, there was only one option remaining. All of us that are in this business, myself included, got into it because we love wildlife. We're not, we didn't get into this business to start killing sea lions. For us, it's kind of like a last resort. You do everything you can non-lethally, and then you either give up because nothing works, or you have to go to the lethal option. They weren't going to give up. They were going to ask for a license to kill. Let's take a quick break. The blubberbusters were convinced they needed to start killing sea lions, and they knew just who to start with. The animal known officially as number 17, but to wildlife managers in Washington state, the 800-pound male California sea lion is public enemy number one. By the early 90s, the original Herschel had disappeared. The new beast of the Ballard Locks, number 17, was nicknamed Hondo after the Boston Celtics legend John Hondo Havlicek. This was an animal that was coming back every year, almost like clockwork. And and he was the biggest challenge. I mean, he was a, a really smart animal. 
Joe Scordino and Steve Jeffries first caught sight of Honda in the late 80s. He got what we called the full mill deal. So everything that we tried, we tried on Honda. They tried to dissuade Honda with seal bombs and that underwater air horn. They also took him on that 23-hour road trip to California. But even that hadn't kept him away. Later, Hondo managed to escape from a state wildlife facility. He was found about a mile away, in the middle of a road. Before he got captured, he tried to take a bite out of a sheriff's patrol car. Hondo was incorrigible and insatiable. The blubberbusters thought he'd rampage around the locks until there were no steelhead left, unless they took more drastic measures. And if we were going to be successful, the, the removal had to be permanent. Permanent removal meant sea lion execution. To kill Hondo, Joe Scordino would have to get the U.S. Congress on board. Legislators at that time were not the ones that wanted to step forward and introduce a bill to say we're going to kill sea lions. I mean, some of the congressmen were uh, very blunt and would call and say, why aren't you just going out and shooting it <laughs> at night when nobody will see it and stop this, this, you know, charade? In Seattle, the idea of killing sea lions was more popular than you might think. In an unscientific radio poll, 71% of callers said that shooting them was an acceptable option. In the beginning, the city had squealed with delight over Herschel. But Seattle's relationship with fish and fishing ran much deeper, both emotionally and economically. Remember that our, our city kind of functioned, uh, fish was a currency. Journalist Kate Gammon again. And here these animals are, you know, just taking it all away. And how can people let this go on? Well, speaker, I rise in support of this resolution, which makes an order the adoption of uh, S-1636. In 1994, Congress passed a series of amendments to the Marine Mammal Protection Act. One of them allowed the lethal removal of sea lions in a highly regulated way. Two-thirds of those present having voted in the affirmative, the resolution is agreed to. It was now legal to kill Hondo. But the battle to save his life was just cranking up. This problem will not be fixed with the trigger of a gun. The plan to start killing the sea lions has sparked protests from environmental groups who say the animals have become little more than scapegoats with flippers. Well, we didn't think that anything should be done to these animals. They should be left alone. That's Wayne Johnson. In the 90s, he was a spokesman for the Northwest Animal Rights Network. There, there's not an animal I don't like, but there's other animals that are kind of favorites of mine. Like, I truly love possums. Sea lions are just crazy, uh, crazy good. They're just fun to watch. I've watched them extensively at Puget Sound, the Ballard Locks, and they never cease to delight me. Wayne found the blubberbusters way less delightful. For the most part in this society, when the government sees a problem involving animals, there's killing. Do you think the plan to kill the sea lions was essentially a plan to commit murder? I do, yes. Precisely because of how I see the equality between all of us living and sharing this planet. There's a dog behind me. If I slit that dog's throat, it would be murder. In 1995, 
Wayne, and a whole lot more activists did everything they could to protect the sea lions. We went out and had a series of protests, all of which were nonviolent, including one of our members uh, got on the trap as a way of uh, attempting to disrupt. That protester placed a bike lock around his neck, then attached himself to the 12-foot by 12-foot cage. He also brought a sign. It said, Free Hondo, Political Prisoner. This was a part that infuriated me, was that we had uh, enforcement officers come out, and they actually sawed through our cage and damaged our cage to uh, remove this person. I was just saying, well, leave the person there overnight. They'll change their mind really quickly. (laughs) It was not hard to be labeled as animal rights bunny hugger. Sea lion hugger, in this case. Sea lion hugger, yeah. I heard everything, believe me. Biologist Tony Frohoff didn't have anything to do with that activist chaining himself to a cage. But by the mid-1990s, she was openly campaigning to keep the sea lions alive. I felt that after a certain point, it was the only reasonable thing to do was to engage in advocacy. There were rallies and protests and counter-protests. Pro-fish groups carried signs that said steelhead have rights too. Tony went on the radio to argue against killing the sea lions. She got besieged by pro-steelhead callers. People not just wanting the sea lions killed, just basically just nuke the sea lions and just this whole rabid, very primitive, (laughs) violent expression of loathing for the sea lions and pretty much any animal who would come near their precious game fish. Tony had tried to make herself heard through official channels. She'd had a seat on a government sea lion task force, but that group had endorsed the lethal option. I even wrote letters to Al Gore. Al Gore was vice president at the time uh, to appeal uh, what we thought were just really preposterous situations occurring here. No matter what Tony said or did, the outcome seemed inevitable. Hondo was going to death row. The lethal removal had to be humane. Uh, So we uh, required the state to trap the animals and then take them to a veterinary facility and have them euthanized. It'd just be an injection with a cocktail of drugs that would kill the animal. The protesters at the Ballard Locks would make one final appeal. In March 1996, they brought out a fiberglass killer whale known as Fake Willie. They argued that a make-believe predator might scare away the sea lions without the need for bloodshed. But it was too late. The five most voracious sea lions were already marked for death. One of them was Hondo. The state was going to trap him one more time and then inject him with that cocktail of drugs. Joe Scordino was making preparations for Hondo's final hours. It was ready to... It it was going to happen. But then, his phone rang. I personally, all of a sudden, got a call. Just said, stop everything. You are not to euthanize that animal. The call that Joe got that day came from a very unexpected place. It was from the White House. Maybe it was the chief of staff. And then I started getting calls from people up the uh, hierarchy in our agency giving me 
instructions that uh, I better be very careful about what I'm doing. <laughs> In that moment, Joe had no clue what was going on. But later, the story would come out. The environmentalist who Tony Frohoff had reached out to, he intervened to save Hondo's life. Vice President Al Gore became personally involved and he had ties to Anheuser-Busch, the owners of uh, SeaWorld, and requested that SeaWorld take the sea lions. From where I sat, I didn't care. I don't think there was anyone that wanted to see the animal die. We wanted it permanently removed so we you know, could move on. Hondo was one of three sea lions to make the long trip to Orlando. This time, he didn't travel by land. The sea lion was FedExed. <laughs> it was a special FedEx flight uh, paid for by SeaWorld. The only thing that could be found to hold the animal, to put him on a, you know, on a pallet and into a plane was a polar bear cage that was used to transfer polar bears between zoos. If the Ballard Locks was sea lion heaven, then SeaWorld was a different kind of Shangri-La. They had a tank with 20, it was like 26 female sea lions. And in the second year, 20 of them were impregnated. So, you know, he, he went to a great life. <laughs> Sounded lovely to some people at the time, but it was not what I consider a humane act. In fact, it was a life sentence. Hondo's life in captivity lasted for just three months. In September 1996, he died of an infection. The fish back in Seattle didn't meet a much better fate. The hungriest sea lions were gone, but the damage had already been done. Well, unfortunately, in the steelhead run, um, I, I think this was a case of uh, too little, too late. By the end of 12 years, there was nothing left. Only a token one or two would come through. There was no more fish in the winter to eat. We lost one of our uh, traditional foods. We can't enjoy it anymore. It's gone forever. Warren King George looks back on the fight over the Ballard Locks with dismay. While people squabbled, fish just kept getting slaughtered. Ninety years after the locks opened for business, the steelhead were finished. Yeah, that's how long it took to essentially wipe out a species that's been living here long before where us humans have. The battles at the Ballard Locks are still going on today. Recently, harbor seals have gotten inside the fish ladder so they can scarf down Chinook salmon. And California sea lions are still thriving throughout the Pacific Northwest and still bedeviling the authorities. The Port of Astoria has tried to scare the sea lions off the docks in the past, but there has been no permanent solution. Everywhere, their predation is horrifying. Uh, they can be very aggressive. Uh, and they'll steal fish right off a line. There are always downstream effects and unintentional consequences to making any decision. Kate Gammon says that all these stories about sea lion gluttony are really about human fallibility. We think that we can remake our environment without repercussions, that we can protect one species without endangering another, that we can make any change to a complex system and predict what the ripple effects will be a week, a year, or a century later. I think that the story of Herschel is playing out again and again. 
And it's not so much that we didn't learn the lessons, but that we're sort of locked into the roles that we all play. We can't always control everything that's happening as much as we would like to and as much as we believe that we're in charge and that we try to be in charge. Sometimes nature just finds a way. <laughs> If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to one year without any ads. And they get a special behind-the-scenes episode at the end of this season with me and senior producer Evan Chung. If you sign up now, you can get the first three months of your membership for just $15. To get that deal, go to slate.com slash one year plus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash one year plus. Next time on One Year 1986, when a bomb goes off at a Wyoming elementary school, a town reckons with the surprising aftermath. Everyone that I've ever talked to knows that we were watched over. We didn't want it to happen. We didn't ask for it to happen. But I also cannot look back on that day and not think of it as a miracle. One Year is written by me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Derek John, Sophie Summergrad, Madeline Ducharme, Evan Chung, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung, Susan Matthews, and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Kate Gammon wrote a feature story for Hakai Magazine on the battle at the Ballard Locks. It's called Herschel, the Very Hungry Sea Lion, and you should check it out. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1986 at oneyearatslate.com. And you can call us on the One Year Hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Stacy Gilbert at the Chittenden Locks Visitor Center, Hannah Palin at the University of Washington Libraries, Jay Wells, Frank Urebeck, Karen Wyman, Sharon Young, Cynthia Rust-Greaves, Fred Fellman, Selena Heppel, Ken Balcom, Walter Pacheco, Terry Wright, Tom O'Grady, Dave Cade, Shannon Paulus, Christina Cotarucci, Sol Worthen, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1986.